You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. We encourage you to use this podcast only as a supplement to your regular attendance or membership of a local church that faithfully preaches the gospel. If you're in Birmingham, we would love for you to visit Iron City. See more details at our website, ironcitychurch.org. Let us begin by stating the obvious. I have less hair. If you're visiting tonight, just know uh, our church is used to seeing me with more hair. But yesterday, I did this strange thing sometimes people do with hair. I cut it. So, ICC family, you might wonder if you're having a guest preacher tonight. I assure you, like Jesus did to the disciples in Mark, it is I. Do not fear. It is I, Isaac Adams, pastor of Iron City Church, father to four wonderful children, and happy husband to Megan Adams. And this past week, Megan and I celebrated nine years of marriage. Praise the Lord. That is not why I lost my hair, just to be clear. Uh, Being married to Megan has been wonderful. Friends, nine years ago, Megan and I stood in the presence of God and made promises to each other. We vowed to take each other as wedded wife, wedded husband, to to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, till death do us part, promises. Whether married or not, we're all familiar with promises. Making them. Breaking them. And maybe you've been on the receiving end of a broken promise. Someone hasn't kept their word to you and man, does that hurt. Uh, Beloved, you may not know this about me, but I'm a child of divorce. Uh, My parents, who are both now deceased and who loved me, split. Their covenant had been broken. Boy, do broken promises hurt. Boy, do they create insecurity, fear. Uh, Broken promises create that what if question in our minds. You've asked it before. What if that person doesn't do what they said they'd do? The church family, y'all know that Adams had a bad car accident lately, and we had to deal with some broken promises with insurance. And I found myself asking, what if my insurance doesn't do what they said they'd do and come through for me? Thankfully, they eventually did. But if we're honest, we don't just wonder if insurance or even people will keep their promises. We wonder if God will. Christian, you know what it's like to wonder, will God come through for me? Will God fight for me? Will God keep his promises? You know what it's like to wonder, what if he doesn't? Be courageous, beloved, and admit that you've wondered this. We all do in different seasons. I've wondered recently, will God come through for me? And I'm your pastor. Beloved, God sees how weak, how insecure our faith can be. And in love, he has given us two 
testaments. That word for testament, like Old Testament, New Testament, that word testament means covenant or promise. God has given us old and new promises and a whole record of how he has kept them so that we might believe he will keep them still. So that we might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, whom all the promises of God find their yes in. And so that by believing in Jesus' name, we may have life. God has given us promises for life. For rest in Christ, who is our life. And the book of Joshua was written to show that God keeps his promises. The whole book of Joshua will be our sermon text for tonight. Uh, Visitors, so you know, in the summer we do overview sermons. That is one sermon on an entire book of the Bible so that we might understand the one story of the Bible. Uh, We fly at 30,000 feet, giving a bird's eye view as we talk throughout, as we walk throughout the Bible and its different genres. So we were last in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as we looked at Exodus. Tonight... We enter the genre that's traditionally known as the history books. Uh, The books of Joshua through Esther. Here's how one pastor described this genre. He said the historical books cover almost a thousand years of history. From the conquest of the promised land to the return from exile in Babylon and the building of the second temple. The history of God's people is marked with moments of great faith and moments of spectacular disobedience. Through it all, God's promises remain true as the Lord prepares his people for the coming of the snake crusher, end quote. And unless you think that was from a super academic commentary, that quote comes from the biggest story Bible written by Kevin DeYoung for kids. So tonight we're doing an overview sermon. And let me just say, I think it's helpful that I'm flying at 30,000 feet and Cam on other weeks is flying at three feet on the ground level as he looks at one verse at a time. Beloved, scripture is a dynamic book. One in which we can squeeze just a few words or fly over a bunch and still profit from. May the Lord's spirit make Joshua profitable for us tonight. And boy, is there a lot to profit from in Joshua. Uh, We heard earlier that Joshua is the book about the conquest of the promised land. Uh, It's the story of God's people being brought into the land God promised them. Beloved, this was God's promise. That he would give his people a land in which they would rest and be with him. Uh, To catch us up where we're at in the Bible, let's just hear these promises for ourselves. Uh, We have congregational prayer. Let's do some congregational reading. I've asked a couple of you to read God's promises from where you're at. So, beloved, don't worry about turning there. You can write down the reference. But let's just listen to God's promise in Genesis. So, Daniel Gilliland, where are you, brother? There you are. Great. Someone will bring you a mic. Could you read Genesis 13, verses 12 to 15 for us, brother? Genesis 13, starting in verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, 
Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Amen. The Lord. Amen. So thank you, brother. God promises Abram he will bring his descendants into that land. Abby Gillette, where are you, Sister Hank? Can you stand? Can you read Exodus 3, verses 7 through 8 for us? Exodus 3, 7 to 8. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Amen. So that's the promise we've heard from Exodus. This is why God delivered his people to dwell with them in a land he will give them. So in review, in Genesis, God creates the world and his people. In Exodus, he brings his people out of Egypt. Exodus and Leviticus really become the story of God preparing the people to go on their way to the promised land. Numbers is the story of that journey in which the people sin horribly and as a consequence have to wander in the wilderness. Deuteronomy is the story of the people coming to the brink of the promised land. Moses brings them there and then we have Joshua where it is time to enter. Will it actually happen? Will God keep his promises? That's what God's people are wondering. Uh, Israel has been wandering in the desert for 40 years. A whole generation has died, and so their kids, now adults, are wondering, will we finally get to enter the land and rest? Will we finally know the end goal of our deliverance from slavery? Will God keep his promises? Joshua gives us four answers. Here's the first. Yes, your father will bring his kids home. Will God keep his promises? Answer number one, yes. Your father will bring his kids home. This point will cover chapters 1 to 6. Let's start with Joshua 1, verse 1 on page 167 of those pew Bibles. The word of God begins saying, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Pause. We got to appreciate the weight of that statement because Moses was the man. Uh, the man of God, Joshua 14 calls him. Friends, Moses was the man who led the exodus, the man who saw God on Mount Sinai, the man God's people wept over 30 days, the last chapter of Deuteronomy tells us, and they wept because though Moses was the man of God, he was still just a man. Which meant he was mortal, so he died. And replaceable. And so the Lord raised up his assistant Joshua to be Moses' successor. Talk about intimidating. Being the guy who follows Moses. I had lunch with Ben Walker this week and he said, quote, Joshua had some big sandals to fill. 
So it's no wonder why the Lord says what he says next to Joshua. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. The Lord says to Joshua, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So that's Joshua's job. He's going to bring the people into the promised land. Moses brought them to the edge. Joshua now gets the baton to bring them in. What a task. It would overwhelm anybody. So the Lord says to Joshua again, verse 7, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Hop down to verse 9, where the Lord says to Joshua for a third time, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go imagine hearing that before your first day on the job God's like I know this is overwhelming Joshua but don't fear I will be with you as I give you the land And beloved, this concept of giving is crucial in Joshua because the people would not so much take the land as it would be given them by God. Friends, the most repeated concept throughout Joshua is that the Lord, Yahweh, gives. As you read this book, just circle every time you see the Lord mention what he has given, provided. You'll see it all over. Do you see it in your own life? Friends, what do we have that we haven't received? This day, this church, this air we're breathing, this season of life, beloved, the book of Joshua is about God's faithfulness, yes, and his grace. Just look at chapter 1, verse 3. Where God says to Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. Oh, do you see how this story is connected? Those promises in Exodus are proven true. They're kept in Joshua. Exodus's promises become Joshua's trophies of God's faithfulness. And there are so many echoes of Exodus in Joshua. Like in chapter 3, when to enter the promised land, God's people come to a body of water, the Jordan River. And what does God do? But basically part the waters yet again. Beloved, the God of Exodus is keeping his promise to bring the children of Joshua home. And one of the most famous accounts of God doing this is the story of Jericho. That massive, strong city fortified by an impenetrable wall. God's plan for his people taking over Jericho seemed crazy. Mostly because it was. You think God would give his people this intricate war strategy? But instead, what God tells the people to do is walk around Jericho six days and say nothing and then on the seventh day walk around Jericho some more and scream really loud that's it that's how you'll defeat the biggest and baddest city out there commenting on this passage Kevin DeYoung said 
this is one of those crazy plans that works only if it's God's plan. I mean, walking and shouting to win a battle. It's foolishness. But the people obey. They march for six days. They enter the land on the seventh day. It's striking. Didn't God rest on the seventh day in Genesis? The people are entering the rest of God. Let's see it for ourselves in chapter 6. Look at verse 15. Chapter 6, verse 15 On the seventh day, they, the people, rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. So the people obey the craziness. They march, verse 16, and at the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you, there's our phrase, the city. Hop down to verse 20. So the people shouted. And the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city victory. Land. Promises kept by God. The God who promised Joshua he'd be with him. And what do we see? But in chapter 6, verse 27 that the Lord was with Joshua. I love verse 27. This little diamond in the text reminding us that our father will keep his promise to bring his children home. The way there may be scary, filled with walls, impossible to jump over, but take heart, beloved. Your father will fight for his kids. Will God keep his promises? Answer number two, yes, your father will fight for his kids. This point will cover chapter 7 through 12. Beloved, your father will fight for his kids, and he'll do so despite his kids. I say God will fight for his kids despite his kids because God remains faithful to his people even when they are faithless to him. You see, Israel obeyed God when They march around Jericho, yay. But in chapter 6, verse 18, God had given Israel command about Jericho. He said, destroy the city and don't take anything from it. Those things are devoted to destruction. And yet look at chapter 7, verse 1. God was faithful to Israel and gave them Jericho. Chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Beloved, God had said, here is all this land, But don't take that. And yet the people took. Achan, the son of Judah, remember that detail, we'll come back to it. But later in chapter 7, Achan, when he's caught, says, I took the the things devoted to destruction because they were beautiful. 
and I coveted them. And I'm wondering if that sounds familiar to you. I'm wondering if it sounds like Genesis, where God said, this is all for you, except this one thing, don't eat of that tree. And yet when humanity saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes, that it was beautiful, they wanted it and took it. Friends, sin is what happens when the wrong desires in us prevail. Sin is what happens when we follow our way. But if you keep reading chapter 7, that's exactly what Israel starts doing. They march into their next battle, cocky. Having taken what they shouldn't have from Jericho, they go into their next battle saying things like, Joshua, don't even send that many soldiers with us. We can handle these wimps. And those wimps wind up handling Israel. Friends, relying on yourself always ends in defeat. And so God lets Israel eat a big old slice of humble pie as a wimpy people crushes them. But the story doesn't end there. Praise God. God does deal with the people. He maintains his holiness. Israel is humbled and relies on God, but God sends them back into battle against the same folks who had kicked their tail. But this time, Israel wins. Do you see? God takes the people's failure and redeems it. He works their failure in such a way that even their failure winds up being for their good. Beloved, God takes Israel's loss and turns it into their victory. It's a gory scene. Joshua hangs the king of this other nation on a tree, chapter 8 says. But in the next few chapters, Israel goes on to win some incredible battles. And it's because the Lord fought for Israel, chapter 10 says twice. Just as Moses said in Exodus 14, when he promised the people who had the Egyptians breathing down their necks, that the Lord will fight for you. Beloved, he promises in Exodus, the promises in Exodus would become the proof in Joshua that God is faithful. And so Israel's hope would not be their wisdom, size, or budget. Israel's hope would be that God would faithfully keep his promise to fight for them. And here's what I want you to see. In light of all this stuff about Achan and God fighting for his people, that this is the way of salvation. That even in our sin, God will fight for his people. He will not abandon us. You see, Achan, you remember Achan, son of the tribe of Judah, uh, the people of Israel were 12 tribes. Achan came from the tribe of Judah and Achan would be disciplined for his sin. The problem is we all, like Achan, have let our sinful desires prevail. Before we are saved, we, like Achan, deserve God's just and burning anger. But the good news is that another son of Judah came. Jesus. Achan was of the tribe of, Ju of Judah, but so was Jesus. Jesus, who never disobeyed God. 
And yet Jesus was hung on a tree like that enemy in Joshua. And Jesus hung on that tree for us. Friends, the first son of Judah, Achan, was disciplined for his sin. But the second son of Judah, Jesus, was disciplined for our sins. And in doing so, Jesus was fighting our biggest battle. Beloved, in Christ, all the promises of God are fulfilled. Sisters and brothers, Jesus fought our biggest battle for us. He absorbed God's wrath and defeated the power of sin and Satan once and for all. And the way he did that, dying on a cross, seemed crazy. Like this, this is salvation. This is God's plan. Like the plan to take Jericho, the cross made no sense. It looked like foolishness. It looked like failure. Jesus was supposed to save us, but all he did was die. Oh, but God has given us the book of Joshua to show us that the, fool, that, the, that the foolishness of God is wiser than man. God has given us Joshua to train us to believe that he can turn failure into victory, evil into good, death into life, just like he did when he raised Christ Jesus up from the grave three days after he was killed. And there is now no condemnation for those who leave their sins and trust in Jesus because all the promises of God, including the promise to fight for his kids, are fulfilled by Jesus and find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And so with this promise keeping God at the helm, Joshua goes on to conquer the land that God promised to give his people. But chapters 11 and 12 record the victories God gave to Israel. If I had to sum up the book of Joshua in a question, it'd be this. Christian, if God is for you, if God is for you, who can be against you? Beloved, your father will keep his promise to fight for his kids. And he'll do this so we can rest. Will God keep his promises? Answer number three, yes. Your father will give his children rest. Your father will give his children rest. This point will cover chapters 13 to 21. Uh, this section basically begins with God saying to Joshua, dude, you're old. So in chapter one, Joshua is young and vibrant, but a lot of time passes in this book. There are many battles over many years. Again, you can see those in chapters 11 and 12. There's finally rest in the land, chapter 11 says, but turn to chapter 13. Chapter 13. Here the Lord says to Joshua that, Joshua, you've done well, but there's still more land I'm giving to Israel. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Now the text says, now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. And there remains yet very much land to possess. And God goes on to list all these places he wants to give to his people. Hop down to the end of verse 6 where God says, I myself will drive them, the inhabitants of these places, out from before the people of Israel. So God will fight the people's battles. But he tells Joshua, only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Okay. So Joshua's job was 
would not be just to take the land, but to also divvy it up among the people so that each tribe could get their inheritance as the Lord had promised them. Everyone would get a land to dwell in with God, to rest in with God. And then the following eight chapters, we see the record of how the land was distributed among God's people. In these chapters, you'll see lists of names and places that are hard to pronounce. You will be tempted to just skip over them. But I would encourage you to read them sometime. Because the reason we have all these names and places is so that we can believe that our God is a real God who makes real promises to real people in real time and space. Christian, ours is no abstract religion. The reason we have the list of all these people is to show us that God kept all his promises. No one in Israel got left out or left behind. Now just turn to chapter 21. Chapter 21. This chapter comes at the end of all the lists of land disbursements. And after all these names, what do we see in verse 43? Chapter 21, verse 43. Look with me. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest. Every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord God had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. Beloved, God keeps his promises. And he will be fair and right on time in how he administers them. Just as he was fair and right on time in how he distributed this land among his kids. Now, before our next point, let me give two caveats that are important to understanding the book of Joshua. The first is about the land and in God's providence. I'm saying this on July 4th weekend. But it's important to clarify that God's people no longer have a specific geographic land on this earth. They did under the old covenant, under the old promises of God where we find Joshua's story. But eventually God gave new promises, the new covenant, in which his people would not be confined to one nation, but rather ours is now the task of going to all nations, Jesus says in Matthew 28. And as God's people made up of people from all nations, we now await a new heaven, a new earth, not a specific geopolitical plot on this earth. And this all gets very practical, friends. Because some folks who bear the name of Christ think that America ought to be a Christian land. And they get real defensive and act as if we got to take back what's ours. This is our land. These are our schools. On January 6, 2021, we saw folks acting as if that capital is our capital. We can take back the land, the city. Oh, but what does Hebrews 13 say? Here we have no lasting city, 
But we seek the city that is to come, the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21 says, friends, God has given us the book of Joshua so that we might believe that God will keep his promise not to bring us to Israel or to America, but to that new Jerusalem. That's the, fact, that's the first caveat about the land. The second caveat is about the violence. The violence we see in the book of Joshua. Now, regarding this book, one pastor asked the sobering question, is God guilty of genocide? It's an understandable question. After all, the land the people took wasn't just empty space they happened to discover. Now, other peoples were driven out of these lands and destroyed. And so, beloved, to not reckon with the bloodiness of this book is to not reckon honestly with it. Of course, at the onset, let me say, we only have so much time tonight. So if you want to continue talking about questions like this, know that we welcome this conversation. But please reach out to an elder or Jane, our women's minister, we saw her earlier. We would happily sit and wrestle with you on this because these things are not easy. And because they're not easy, I'm just going to pray right now. Father, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. And it is hard sometimes. So, Father, help us to understand it. Let me say only that which is true and helpful in Jesus' name. Amen. As I studied and prayed over this, beloved, it seemed wise to not try to give you 25 justifications for these conquests, however helpful those may be, but rather to make the more general point that these conquests highlight exactly why we are doing these overview sermons. Beloved, Joshua is not an isolated book. It comes in the context of a whole book and elsewhere in this book, God says clearly that he does not want anyone to perish without first repenting. Second Peter 3 says, in Ezekiel 33, God says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather he wants the wicked to turn from his way and live. And did you know, Joshua includes a beautiful testimony of a Canaanite woman doing just that. We meet her early on in chapter two. Her name is Rahab. The very Rahab whom Jesus would be a descendant of. See the record for yourself in Matthew chapter 1. Rahab basically says to Israel, I've heard of your God. I want to follow him. And God spares her. Rahab, who was the lowest of low in that society, God spares her of judgment, showing that he is not ruthless and that even in the old covenant, the Gentiles were mercifully being brought in, however slowly. Beloved, here is hope. 
That in the midst of all the darkness and violence in Joshua, there are glimmers of God's global redemption, even alongside the more glaring examples of God's justice. In the manifold tomorrow, I'm going to share a resource that's been helpful for me in dealing with God's justice, because that attribute, attribute of God certainly helps frame and explain this conquest of Canaan. Canaan. But like I said, we only have so much time, and it encouraged me, and it encouraged me that instead of giving us a flat, sterile, emotionless proposition that explains why the divine conquered, condoned war, instead of that, God gives us the flesh and blood person of Rahab, the hero of Rahab whose lineage would eventually produce the hero who endured all God's wrath for all people who would turn and believe in him. Everyone who wants to turn and trust in God can. They can come to Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is one story. We preach all of it, trusting in its author. Amen. One last point for us. Will God keep his promises? Answer number four, yes. And so you have a choice to make. Will God keep his promises? Answer number four, yes. And so you have a choice to make. This point will cover chapters 22 through 24, the end of the book. Beloved, we've seen God faithfully keep his promises to bring his kids home, to fight for his kids, and to give them rest And this is where the story ends. The people are resting with God in the land. He had kept his promises, and Israel had also made promises to God. That's what a covenant is, this binding agreement between two parties in which they both effectively say, let me die if I don't hold up my end of the deal. And so God had made promises to Israel And Israel had promised to obey God, to not turn away from his word. God commanded their obedience right off the bat in chapter 1. And then we see this covenant renewed in chapters 8 and 24, where the people vowed to remain faithful to God, much like Megan and I vowed at our wedding ceremony to remain faithful to one another. Commenting on the book's ending, Kevin DeYoung again said, God had kept his promise. Now the people had to keep theirs. And yet, church family, we've already done a bird's eye sermon on the book that follows Joshua, the book of Judges. In that book, there arises another generation who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Judges 2 says, and things get really dark in Judges as the people really sin and seek to be like the nations they ultimately fail to drive out. And yet God would send deliverer after deliverer who would save them and ultimately point to the deliverer who would save us. And Jesus has saved us so that we might rest and do good works. Beloved, we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for them. 
How does Titus 2 put it? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Why am I going on about good works? Because I'm looking at a congregation of folks who've been saved by Christ. Praise God, we have entered into his rest. And as Hebrews 4 says, we are now resting from all our work. Joshua, likewise, looked at a congregation of people who God had given, whom God had given rest. And in his final words to them, in chapter 24, Joshua charged them to serve the Lord in sincerity and faithfulness. Choose you this day, Joshua says in chapter 24, verse 15. Choose you this day whom you will serve, your idols or your savior. Beloved, the choice is still yours. Whom will you serve with your life? I pray the answer is the Lord. Don't serve him to earn merit. No, serve him because of the mercy, because of the mercy he has shown you in Christ. The fulfillment of all his promises. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that in Christ all your promises are yes and amen. And Father, we ask you to help us to believe those promises, to stand on them, to even taste them now as we turn to your table. In Christ's name.